0: This is Backstory, I'm Peter Ronoff. In this election, presidential candidates from both parties say they wanna help America's struggling middle class. They just disagree on how best to do that. Cut taxes or expand benefits to the middle class. Let the free market solve the problem of growing income inequality, or get the government to help pay college tuition. This week on Backstory, we revisit an earlier episode on the history of the American middle class. We'll explore the aspirations of an 18th century shopkeeper. We'll go in search of the roots of the African-American middle class. And we'll consider how money isn't always the most accurate marker of economic status.
1: There's always been a black middle class, but it hasn't always been pegged to income. The
0: challenges and dreams of the middle class, today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation
2: for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American
3: History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow, and I'm here with Peter Onuf. Hey, Brian. And Ed Ayers is with us. Hey, Brian. There's a journalist at Politico named Tim Noah. A few years ago, he published a book about inequality in America. And in that book, he wrote about a man you've probably never heard of. I certainly hadn't heard of him. He's a guy named James Treslow Adams. We don't know his name.
4: What we do know is the phrase that he created. And that phrase is the American dream.
3: That's right. This Adams is the originator of the American dream. And so you might guess that Adams was around in the nation's early years, or certainly a few decades later in the heady days of Manifest Destiny. And if you guessed that, you would be wrong. Interestingly, he coined that uh, phrase in 1931, two
4: years after the... Odd uh,
3: odd time to coin the phrase of the American dream, not nightmare.
4: Exactly, exactly. Uh, Yeah, unemployment was headed towards uh,
3: 25%. But even in the depths of the Great Depression, the dream of making it in America would have resonated with many, many people. The nation was coming off several decades of unprecedented growth, and a lot of folks had directly benefited from that growth. So much so that James Truslow Adams figured it would be a no-brainer to call his book The American Dream. And his editor said, oh, don't call it The American
4: Dream. We'll never be able to sell a book called The American Dream. <laughs> and of course, all these many years later, uh, nobody remembers Adams, nobody remembers the book, everybody remembers the phrase The American Dream. So much for editor's wisdom.
3: (laughs) Despite the book's new title, The Epic of America, the dream had staying power. But for Adams, the dream wasn't as simple as we often make it out to be today. He said it was uh,
4: not, quote, a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, um, but rather, quote, a dream of a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of
0: birth or position. When he wrote that, James Truslow Adams was living his own version of the dream. To be fair, it wasn't exactly regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of his birth. Adams' father was a well-to-do stockbroker. But still, Adams the Younger had amassed a small fortune in the stock market and at age 35 had left Wall Street to pursue a writing career in Europe. He was living in London, in fact, when he wrote The Epic of America.
3: Now, it might sound a little... let's just say cynical, for this guy Adams to be pumping his vision of the American dream from England while the economy was still in tatters. But he had good reason for being optimistic. Adams had been born at a time when upward mobility was a fairly common thing in the United States. For instance, farmer's sons around the turn of the century were 25% more likely to advance into white-collar jobs than they would be half a century later in a time we usually associate with the golden age of the middle class.
0: Since the turn of the 21st century, the middle sector of wage earners in America has contracted, with families more likely to move down out of the middle class than they have been to move up. And yet Americans still think of their country, as James Truslow Adams once did, as the land of opportunity. A recent Pew poll found that 40% of Americans think it's common for people to start poor, work hard, and become rich. That's the supreme irony, that
4: that Americans are are less fatalistic than Europeans are about their chances of moving up. But if you look at the statistics, uh, most countries in Western Europe that are comparable to our economy have uh, more rapid upward mobility
3: at this point than the United States does. So, Tim, is this the American dream or the American delusion? Well, I think that uh, it is... A bit of a delusion. Take, for instance, what Tim Noah refers to as income heritability. That's the likelihood you'll make roughly what your parents made. So the higher income heritability is, the lower social mobility is. In recent years, economists have crunched the heritability numbers for the 20th century. And what they found isn't very encouraging.
4: Previously, studies had shown that income heritability was less than 20 percent. So everybody thought, you know, hooray. You, know, you it's, made it on it's, your that's
3: own. That's right. 80 percent chance of making it on your 80% own. 80
4: percent chance. Exactly. You know, to, to quote that famous poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You could say I am master of 80 percent of my fate. I am the captain of 80 percent of my soul. Pretty good. right? Right.
3: So I might inherit male pattern baldness from my parents, but I'm not going to inherit their uh, income status.
4: Right. But then the problem was they found out that um, heritability was much higher, uh, about twice as high as they had thought. So it became, I am the master of 60% of my fate. (laughs) And then it dropped even further to about 40 or 50%. And there was actually one researcher, uh, he was looking at income among brothers, and he found that you were likelier to inherit your parents' place in the income distribution than you were to inherit their height or weight.
2: There's been plenty of talk lately about the plight of America's middle class. Virtually all of the 2016 presidential candidates, from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, have vowed to help Americans who can't seem to get ahead, no matter how hard they
0: work. It's a favorite theme of politicians, in part because it resonates so widely. Almost half of Americans identify as middle class. And yet, it's always been incredibly difficult to pin down what exactly we mean by middle class. Median income varies enormously by region, ranging from $37,000 in Mississippi to $69,000 in Maryland. In New York City alone, the middle 60% of income earners, one common definition of middle class, ranges from about $20,000 to $170,000 a year. And so today on the show,
3: we're looking at what this powerful but elusive idea, the middle class, has meant to past generations. When did the idea take hold and how has it changed since then? We'll consider how consumption habits defined class status all the way back in the colonial era. We'll hear how the middle classes of the 19th century took shape, in part, by rejecting the ways of the rich. And we'll ask what the civil rights movement had to do with the shifting nature of the black middle class in the early decades of the 20th century.
2: But first, we're going to return to that idea of the American dream or at least to its 19th century variant. Now, a lot of listeners may associate the final decades of the 19th century with the great rags-to-riches story. This was, after all, the era of famous industrialists who rose from humble beginnings, guys like John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie. But Stanford historian Richard White says that most Americans in this era did not aspire to untold riches. Instead, they aspired to something they would have called competency. That meant that by the end of your life, you would have enough, enough to live in comfort, maybe own a little property, provide for your children, and not worry that you could lose it all should something unexpected happen. We invited Richard to explain this idea of competency a little more fully. So, competent, you know, we we use that almost today as a... A backhanded compliment. Oh, he's very competent at his job. It's not something you really want to hear about yourself, right? Uh, But
5: can you tell me why they would call it competency? Well, they would talk competency because it meant your ability to take care of yourself and those who are dependent on you. Ah. And it meant that you weren't dependent on other people. So it it comes out of its 19th century small-l liberalism that the whole goal in life is to have a series of relatively autonomous citizens who would, in no matter what happened to them, be able to meet the circumstances around them.
2: So was this a a growing group in the 19th century?
5: Would, Would more and more people have found themselves competent? they strive to be it's it's i think many of its roots are agricultural it goes back to the time mm-hmm. when people had farms and when you're The aim of having a farm was not that you were going to end up being a huge, wealthy person. The idea was, in the end, you will have accumulated enough land to be able to distribute it among your children that they, too, can have farms, that there'll be enough left that they'll take care of you and your wife in old age. As people start moving off of farms, then competence becomes a more nebulous concept. And we start talking about people who, in the 19th century, would be called the middling classes. We don't have a sense of a middle class. But competence would extend to working people whose whole idea is to save enough from their wages, buy a house, put money aside, take care of their children, and if they could get through life and do that, they considered themselves a success. The aim of their working life was not to end up being a manager or a boss, let alone a capitalist. It was to be a successful, a competent worker. And this is also the time
2: when there's such massive immigration to the United States and also the time, obviously, that African-Americans in the South are trying to make their way in a post-slave society in which they're trying to carve out something that America has to offer. So what would those folks think about this matrix of competency? Do they have a, a chance of making it within it?
5: They do, and I think the person who best expresses what they want, the chance they think should have, is Samuel Gompers, who becomes the first head of the American Federation of Labor. Actually, he's their only head for a very long time. Um, And what he argues is what workers need is the ability to consume. And that the American economy depends on consumption and what his slogan becomes is more and by more he doesn't again mean great wealth he means enough that a a worker can buy a house he can decorate that house have furniture in that house can support a wife and children has enough leisure to read books read newspapers participate in politics so more the slogan of the American Federation of Labor is in effect uh, an extension of the old doctrine of competency because what he's asking for is Even wage laborers deserve a competency which is now going to be defined not so much in independence because they're working for wages, but Mm -hmm. in being paid enough that they can consume sufficiently to have the standard of living which was assumed with a competency.
2: It seems to me too, Richard, that uh, some of the major efforts of both immigrants and African Americans is to achieve a competency collaboratively by creating insurance companies and mutual burial societies. The the very things that are cornerstones of competency, uh, they decide our best bet is to, you know, give a nickel every week and then when I die, uh, somebody will bury me. Uh, Or that if I get sick, there's some other group to take care of me is... Is competency at tension with that, or is this just another way of achieving competency?
5: Well, I mean, you bring up a very good point, because what what this is is the way in which competency becomes socialized. Um, And Americans Hmm. in the 19th century used the word socialism in a very different sense than we do. They can use it sometimes in the same way we do, but more often they use it in meaning as the opposite of individualism. What they mean Mm. is in this large industrial society, they have to do what you just described. People have to cooperate. So the word cooperation is all over the 19th century, and it's what we can't achieve individually, the ends of a competency we can't achieve collectively. So
2: later on, we would imagine that people who identify themselves as striving and middle class would have disdained socialism because they would have seen that as something kind of dragging them down into the mass. But what you're suggesting, Richard, is that there was a good hunk of time in the 19th century when being competent, uh, being middling, uh, was seen as a healthy thing, that what you didn't want to do is fall into dependency below. But what you've suggested is that their dream was not to— Abandon that great middling to become wealthy. Uh, and I'm sorry, that just
5: violates everything that we know about the
2: Gilded Age and even its name.
5: What, what you have is in the very name Gilded Age, I mean, Mark Twain didn't use the term to praise the age. I mean, he he meant, in fact, to disparage the age and ridicule the age. The the whole thing was there was this, you know, gilding of wealth, but beneath this was this corrupt center. So the, the problem was that they recognized some people were getting wealthy beyond their wildest imaginings. But those people are disparaged. Those people are feared. Those people are seen as dangerous. People don't praise Jay Gould in the late 19th century. Mm. Cornelius Vanderbilt is not a popular hero. John D. Rockefeller is not somebody who they want to emulate. Um, what What you find is these people are somehow anomalies in the system and signs that the system's going wrong that the country itself was conceived as this vast, middling society. And you're perfectly right. They fear the poor, but they also fear the rich just as much. So I think if we would be puzzled by the Gilded Age, the Gilded Age would be utterly bewildered by us because we seem to be evolving into the kind of society that they most feared, with a society with uh, a small but very wealthy group of people who exercise inordinate control over all aspects of the society— and another group of people who are feared as being too poor to share the values, that's what the Gilded Age was afraid would happen to the United States. So the Gilded Age was about that middling, and that's what they were seeking to keep.
2: So, Richard, when this middle class of post-World War II America emerges, what happens to the ideals of competency? Are those transformed in some way, or do they fall away?
5: Where are they today? The idea of competency doesn't die quickly. I think it Mm -hmm. continues on through the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And um, if you look at the last presidential campaign, both Romney and Obama were trying to stake out a ground of fairness, a ground of equity, um, a ground of people having an equal chance, and Mm -hmm. to cut into this belief that the very rich, those who control institutions, have stacked the game. And I think what they're Appealing to is the um. Remnants of this old idea that someplace in the American public, I think, still is the idea that the the real purpose of this country is to produce relatively equal citizens where people have a fair chance. If you work hard, there will be a reward. I don't think that idea is dead. Um, But I do think the kind of thing I see in many of my students at Stanford, this desire to be wealthy beyond at least my wildest imaginings by the time they're 30, Um, that is quite real now, but I'd also say it's quite new. I don't remember that in my own life until quite recently, and I don't see it that often in American history.
2: Richard, thanks so much for helping us understand this broad sweep of a central concept in American history.
5: I've enjoyed it. It's always good talking to you.
2: Richard White is a history professor at Stanford University. We'll post a longer version of our conversation at BackstoryRadio.org. Before the break, historian Richard White was making the case that for 19th century Americans, it was enough to, well, have enough, and that people back then didn't set out to make vast fortunes. But a hundred years later, people's aspirations had
0: changed. Uncle,
4: when we grow up, we want
0: to be just like you. Rich! Well, boys, I'll tell you my secret build hotels on boardwalk.
2: In These are commercials for the board game Monopoly airing in the 1980s and 1990s.
4: Monopoly's been bringing people together for almost 50 years. That's how long we've been wheeling and dealing together, building hotels together, and going to jail
3: together. Corner the market in utilities. You can't
2: lose. Whether or not Monopoly brought your family members together or more likely drove them apart, one thing is clear. It has to do with that 50 years part. They had their history all wrong. Our producer Kelly Jones caught up with the author of a new book about Monopoly. Here's Kelly to tell us what she learned.
6: The common story about Monopoly's origins is a classic rags-to-riches tale, and it goes like this. In the 1930s, a despondent and unemployed man named Charles Darrow invented the game to make himself feel better about being poor. Ultimately, and this is the part of the story that is true, Darrow became the first millionaire board game inventor when he sold it to Parker Brothers— living the very dream that Monopoly celebrates. But Mary Pilon, author of The Monopolists, says that Darrow didn't invent Monopoly. It was invented by a woman a few decades
7: earlier, and it was originally called Landlords. The game dates to a woman named Elizabeth McGee, and she gets a patent for her Landlords game in 1904. And she had originally devised the game as a teaching tool to protest against Monopolies and the monopolists of her time. Elizabeth, or Lizzie McGee,
6: was a devout follower of anti-monopolist crusader Henry George. He was the author, most famously, of Progress and Poverty, a book that sold millions of copies in the 1880s and 90s. At the time, the only book that sold more was the Bible.
7: And the core of his argument was something called a land value tax or a single tax. And his basic idea was that people should own 100% of what they made or created, but that things found in nature, like land, should belong to everybody. George's efforts kick-started progressive
6: reforms around the turn of the century. But when he died in 1897, his followers were concerned that they wouldn't be able to keep his movement afloat. At the time, Lizzie McGee had been delivering anti-monopolist lectures in her Maryland living room. She felt a strong responsibility to keep the single-tax message alive. And lo the game of Landlords was born.
7: And much like Monopoly today, you pick a token, although the charms and things wouldn't have been there, and you try to make your way around the board gathering properties. And her original board had railroads, it had uh, go to jail, it had um, public park instead of free parking. So it's not wildly dissimilar from what a lot of us know as Monopoly today.
6: But the Landlords game was different in one crucial way. McGee's game had two sets of rules. In the monopolist rule set, the goal was to gobble up all the property you could and drive your opponents into bankruptcy. But in the second anti-monopolist, single-tax-inspired rule set, every player benefited when one player benefited. There were no taxes on essential utilities. All rent was first paid to a public treasury, not a private property owner. That public treasury eventually got used for things like making railroads and college free for everyone and raising wages that fistful of dollars you get for passing go. The game was declared over in just five rounds. It might seem weird to have invented a game that you have to play twice, but the two rule sets were supposed to teach, through stark contrast, the merits of spreading wealth versus the evil of hoarding it for oneself. The two rule sets lasted for a couple of decades. McGee renewed the game's patent in 1924. But by then it was clear which rule set was the most popular. And even as capitalism's boom-and-bust cycle showed its ugly side in 1929, the monopolistic rules prevailed.
7: They allow us a a context for role-playing, and I think that this idea of being able to throw around property and a lot of money at a time when the middle class didn't have a lot of that and was very much struggling, there's a fantasy aspect to that that I think made monopoly really, really appealing. Charles Darrow,
6: the guy usually credited with inventing the game, capitalized on the appeal of this fantasy to Depression-era Americans down on their luck. His board game was just landlords without McGee's single tax rules. He called it Monopoly and sold it to Parker Brothers in 1935. The same year, Parker Brothers bought up McGee's patent for just $500, cornering the market on financial board games and essentially securing a monopoly on Monopoly. Mary Pilon says it wasn't simply the very real prospect of poverty that made middle-class Americans want to play at being rich. Because as middle-class prosperity returned after World War II, Monopoly continued to enjoy huge popularity. In fact, at that very time, tiny irons, thimbles,
7: Scotty dogs, and top hats became staples of American households you know, the middle class needs a nice refrigerator and they need, you know, nice appliances and you have the rise of the suburbs and things like that. And monopoly very much becomes like another ubiquitous household item.
6: In the second half of the 20th century, the aspiration to wealth was coming to define the American dream. More and more, it was a part of what it meant to be middle class. Monopoly, the cunning, cruel, and, according to Lizzie McGee, evil version of the game, perfectly embodied the new American dream. And if you wanted to keep up with the Joneses, you'd better have a hotel on Boardwalk.
2: Kelly Jones is one of our producers. Helping her tell that story was Mary Pilon, author of the new book, The
8: Monopolists*.
0: Our next story is about dining out, which, as it turns out, was a strong indicator of social class towards the end of the 19th century. For starters, there weren't many restaurants back then. Most cities had only two or three,
9: and we're not talking about Red Lobster or chilies. These restaurants are pretty exclusive. They have highly trained cores of waiters. And in general, you have one waiter per every table.
3: This is Andrew Haley, a historian at the University of Southern Mississippi. He says these restaurants were all about service. And I don't mean just getting your meal on time. Your waiter stood at attention, ready to cater to your every need.
9: That waiter is going to go to the kitchen and get your food. He may cut your roast. He may recommend the best dish or the, you know, the freshest dish of the day. Um, But waiters were sometimes asked to do other servile tasks. They might be sent to the hotel um, lobby in order to purchase a cigar for you, or even sent down to the railroad station in order to get the timetable of trains coming in. So it was kind of like rent-a-servant. It was kind of rent-a-servant. Now, right
3: around the same time, the group we'd identify as the new middle class, factory managers, small business owners, lawyers, doctors, were starting to dine out at least once in a while. And when they did, it was a bit of a
9: culture shock. These are diners who are not accustomed to going out to fancy restaurants. They're a bit intimidated by the experience anyhow. They don't know the French language that is most often used on these menus. They don't know the uh, standards of behavior for the restaurant, how to dress, which fork to use. And on top of that, This cost them a lot of money. To dine out at the turn of the century cost about $20. Um, It might be the equivalent of spending $400 at one of these fancy restaurants.
3: All these things tripped up the new middle-class diners. But none were as irksome as the relatively new practice of tipping.
0: Tipping was a convention that wealthy travelers had brought back from Europe in the years following the Civil War. By the turn of the century, it was common practice in American cities, and it served a few purposes, all of which suited the wealthy. It ensured top-notch service, allowed people to flaunt their surplus wealth, and, says Haley, kept the waiters from spilling any proverbial beans.
9: You were also renting a degree of privacy, right? Because the waiter was there the whole time, ready to wait on your table. And by paying a generous tip, you in short, that that waiter wouldn't talk about what happened at the table, whether that was a business deal or you were dining with somebody other than your wife.
3: Middle-class diners had no use for any of that. They hated the fact that there was no set standard for tipping. To them, this convention celebrated ostentatious wealth and nothing more. And they made their disgust known, railing against the so-called tipping evil in newspapers, magazines, really in every venue that they could find. Class distinctions are being more and more emphasized in this country, and one of the causes of it is the prevalence of tipping. A considerable number of persons to whom money comes easy like to show off by aping the customs of the aristocracy of the old world, by giving freely to those who serve them. This is from the Lincoln Daily News in 1915. It typifies the ideological critique of tipping that showed up on editorial pages. But on the ground, the anxiety was much more concrete, and it was all about the waiters. The middle class were
9: terrified of the idea that waiters were adulterating their food, spitting in their soup, or doing other things. And occasionally... There was a um, kind of backlash against the waiters. In Chicago, they rounded up 100 waiters at one point in time who were suspected of doing something to the food.
3: Others took a less hands-on approach. They looked to technology as the answer to the seemingly intractable problem.
9: There were about 20 patents that were filed in the early 20th century for waiterless restaurants.
3: One proposed remedy might seem odd coming from people who claim to be against class distinctions. The idea was that you'd sit at the table and write your order on a tablet of some sort.
9: And then the center of your table descends down into the kitchen with your order. And instantaneously, people throw the food on um, and it rises back up. (laughs) And you've been served your dinner without ever meeting a waiter and without having to tip.
0: Haley says the conflict over tipping was in large part due to the fact that the small but growing middle class had no space to call its own. Today, we take for granted that the vast majority of restaurants, hotels, and stores are basically for the middle class. But around the turn of the century, it was either restaurants
9: with $400-plus meals or seedy taverns, not many in-betweens. The middle class have two choices, right? They're going to try and insert themselves into this upper-class culture in which they always are kind of second-class citizens. Or they can try and colonize and take over some of these working-class establishments. The middle class went with option number two.
3: Taverns were gradually upgraded and became a cleaner, friendlier, and reasonably priced option. Fast food, buffet restaurants soon emerged. As for tipping, it obviously didn't go away. But in the 1920s, the idea of a standard tip was introduced, helping it to become more predictable, more affordable, and a little less evil.
0: Andrew Haley helped us tell that story. He's a historian at the University of Southern Mississippi and the author of Turning the Tables, Restaurants, and the Rise of the Middle Class. So far, we've been talking as though this somewhat ambiguous category has its roots in the end of the 19th century and really took shape a few decades later. But I recently sat down with somebody who managed to dig up, and I mean dig up, some stuff that backdates our story a whole lot earlier.
8: We found trash, foundations, privies, all sorts of stuff archaeologists
0: love. This is Christina Hodge. She's an archaeologist at Stanford who spent a decade sifting through the cast offs of one Elizabeth Pratt, a widowed shopkeeper in Newport, Rhode Island, all the way back in the 1700s. It would, of course, be anachronistic to label Pratt middle class, but it would be fair to call her one of the middling sorts who were just beginning to coalesce into a recognizable social group at this time. A big part of that was about defining themselves against what they were not poor or rich. It was a process of making consumer choices, choices that can look to us through the haze of time as, well, somewhat contradictory.
8: She spent some money on very fancy cuts of meat, but had really difficult life with parasitic diseases. From documentary records, we know that she had to sell all of her pewter plates at one point to make money, but she still spent money on a silk riding hood. She had a really messy yard, but invested heavily in porcelain tea wares. You know, proportionally, percentage-wise, she had as many porcelain wares as elite planters in Maryland or elite families in Massachusetts. But she, you know, had this tiny house. So the question was, why were there so many porcelain tea wares there? And why weren't there other things, punch bowls or plates? Um, this was a time when people were starting to develop individual place settings as a fancy way of dining. So why wasn't she as interested in that as she was interested in teawares?
0: Some people would say, "Oh, she just wants to be the kind of person who has this stuff with all that silk and porcelain and so forth." But you don't think that's a fair characterization. That she's not uh, buying up, as it were. She's not making believe that she's a bourgeois person.
8: I don't think so. I think that's too narrow a Mm -hmm. interpretation of what was going on. And it doesn't really take non-elite people, middling sorts or other sorts, lower sorts, seriously as historical agents, as knowing consumers. When you start looking at the material culture in her house versus the material culture in her neighbors' homes, for example, other middling sorts or even the elites – there's not a predictable pattern. Everybody was doing it a little bit differently, mm-hmm. but they were doing it at the same time. So right. saying that she was just copying others doesn't explain what we were finding. Right. And so we had to look, or I had to look for a different explanation for what was going on and how she was creating this idea of the middling sorts every day through everything she chose to do.
0: Now, it sounds like Elizabeth was, uh, was pushing her luck on some occasions, or at least stretching her resources. So in, in a way, the... The great concern for somebody in her position would be that she couldn't sustain it.
8: Yes, that's true, especially because she was a woman and mm-hmm. women's control over their bodies, their property was so tenuous. She did not purchase her home. She did not become a shopkeeper until after she was widowed and was able to take those steps legally. Right. right. But as – economic circumstances changed. Um, She actually ended up in a series of lawsuits with both of her sons-in-law over her house, over her shop of goods, which they wanted. And ultimately, she was no longer in control of that shop. It went to one son-in-law. She was no longer paying for her own way in the world. Um, That was part of a lawsuit between the two sons-in-law that someone had to support her. So that real precarious grasp she had on the middle class through entrepreneurship, through financial solvency, through property ownership slipped away.
0: Yeah. So to be a, a female in that world was to be in a truly liminal position as a middling sort. Women were not supposed to be independent under the law of coverture and, and uh, the conventions of the day. Exactly. As you're talking about these middling sorts of people, Christine. I'm thinking of Benjamin Franklin's phrase, happy mediocrity. If you can imagine being mediocre and happy today, it's, well, it's hard to imagine that. Uh, But I think that speaks to this idea that there is actually uh, value and virtue in achieving this kind of independence and that this is the bedrock of a good society.
8: I think that's absolutely part of the values that were emerging at this time. And Mm -hmm. the idea that this was something you could define for yourselves, certainly with reference to other groups, but it looks different for everyone. So you have the shared values, but kind of idiosyncratic, strategic, material expressions of this depending on who you are, I think is part of what we see in the consumerism and definitions of middling sorts in the 18th century all the way through Today, where everybody thinks, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people <laughs> identify as middle class or in the middle, right. even though there's a wide range of behaviors and these things have shifted over time.
0: Christina Hodge is the academic curator and collections manager of Stanford University's Archaeology Collections. She's the author of Consumerism and the Emergence of the Middle Class in Colonial America.
2: A year ago, President Obama traveled to Chicago to designate a new national monument in the south side neighborhood of Pullman. Pullman was originally a company town created by George Pullman to produce his namesake luxury railroad cars. Guests on those cars were treated like royalty, waited on by a fleet of famously hardworking porters. President Obama came to Pullman because it was there that those porters created the nation's first all-black labor union in 1925.
0: These men and women, without rank, without wealth or title, became the bedrock of a new middle class. These men and women gave their children and grandchildren opportunities they never had.
1: There's always been a black middle class. Even prior to the founding, there was a black middle class. But it hasn't always
3: been pegged to income. This is Cornelius Bynum, a historian at Purdue University. A few years ago, he published a biography of the activists who organized the Pullman Porters, A. Philip Randolph. Bynum told me that while Randolph did help forge a new African-American middle class in the 20th century, he himself was the product of an older black middle class. That older black middle class was defined on the one hand by African-Americans who had the ear of important whites, and on the other, what would seem to be the complete opposite
1: autonomy, the degree to which a particular African-American is independent from white influence. So that would be black ministers, for instance, who uh, aren't particularly concerned about uh, white patronage. That would also be black entrepreneurs as well.
3: Interesting. So, so they, they may not be particularly wealthy or make much of an income, right. but they're middle class because their income is not derived from whites. That's exactly right. It's about the ability to be autonomous to some degree from white influence. Now, you've written about an important African-American leader, A. Philip Randolph. Could -hmm. you tell me a little bit about Randolph? And I'm really interested to know if he came out of that 19th century middle class milieu that you just described.
1: Absolutely, he did. Uh, Randolph was born in um, Jacksonville, Florida, uh, in 1889, I believe. And his parents were exactly the kind of middle-class community leaders that uh, I'm talking about. His father was an itinerant uh, AME, African Methodist Episcopal preacher. There are numerous instances in Randolph's childhood where his uh, family status comes into play. There's one instance he recalls uh, quite vividly where rumors of a lynching uh, circulate around the community and uh, his father is the uh, sort of the community leader that rallies the black community to stand vigil at the county jail to ensure that nothing untoward happened to the potential uh, victim. And again, that's predicated on his ability to sort of stands separate from white influence. It wasn't something that he had to worry about in terms of economic reprisals being evicted from his home, being fired from a job that gave him a kind of insulation from those kind of white reprisals that often plagued the lives of everyday African-Americans.
3: Now, as we move into the 20th century, African-Americans do uh, begin to work in a white world uh, more frequently, By that, I'm talking about industrialization. They work for the railroads. They work in factories. Um, How do notions of what constitutes the black middle class begin to change as African Americans have more daily interactions with the white world of work? As we move into the
1: 20th century, what I think comes to be more defining with respect to class is consumption, uh, moving to cities uh, in the first decades of the 20th century, and then in the buildup to the First World War, moving into industrial employment, creates sort of new economics for African Americans. They now have greater access to disposable income, and it's the disposable income that provides for a measure of consumption that comes to be more characteristic of black middle-class status than in the 19th century. So, for instance, people could not only afford to buy black newspapers, but the actual consumption of that kind of media made it possible for African-Americans to find livelihoods as journalists or as editors.
3: So as the nature of uh, African-American involvement in the political economy changes, tell me about... A. Philip Randolph's uh, role in all of this? Well, Randolph is
1: both a beneficiary of some of these changes as well as someone who comes to take the lead in shaping some of the ways in which the black middle class will uh, find political footing in the mid-20th century. So what I mean to say by that is that as we see this transformation in black discretionary spending in the years around the First World War. Randolph, in fact, will found a newspaper called The Messenger uh, that becomes a very popular publication among African-Americans in New York in particular. Uh, He's able to publicize his political views. That becomes the platform by which he's invited to participate in the founding of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in 1925. And this really becomes the basis of what ultimately becomes his civil rights career.
3: Neil, despite all of the progress, when race so easily and quickly can trump class for African Americans, is it fair to say that any progress has been made without security, without certainty that one's achievements will keep one in the middle class, is one really middle class?
1: That's a great question. Can economic progress without the civil and political rights to protect it ever really be progress? I think that um, much of what we've seen the aftermath of the housing crash and its impact on uh, the African-American middle class, the, the downturn in the economy, and the kinds of pressures that those kinds of events, economic events, have put on the black middle class really bring that whole question back to the forefront. Uh, Can, in fact, one be middle class if the expectation of being able to pass on those benefits, that wealth, is, in fact, possible? Uh, If one's economic standing is so vulnerable to these kinds of economic uh, shifts, can one, in fact, really be classed as middle class? I I think that's a legitimate question.
3: Cornelius Bynum is a historian at Purdue University. His book is A. Philip Randolph and the Struggle for Civil Rights. You know,
2: Brian, Peter, it seems that Neil's question is the one that's kind of haunted this entire show. You know, what does it mean to have middle class identity Mm -hmm. and status if you can't pass it on? I mean, is this something that we've discovered now, or has this been there? all along?
0: No, Ed, I think it's a great question, and uh, it goes back to the very beginning. Neil talked about independence, a key word, and he was talking about the black community under conditions of Mm -hmm. segregation. Not dependent on whites is a a marker of middle-class black identity. Well, go back to the American Revolution. It's all about the independence of Americans, not just America, of Americans And that independence is predicated on the way the economy works and on the way you can sustain your family and pass on land and opportunity to your children. And it's overwhelmingly agricultural society. So at the beginning, Mm -hmm. it's framed in terms of land ownership. But there's always a problem with that independence, and that is that it is insecure and vulnerable. What if you lose that property? You could lose the property because of taxation or because you go into debt because you're not truly independent or because the railroad doesn't happen to go where you are. That's right. So the original American dream, it it seems to me, is to sustain independence as conditions change and change is the very condition of being in America. There's a tremendous amount of mobility both vertical, that is, up and down, horizontal, moving from space to space. Yeah, and it only gets less
2: settled in the 19th century, you know? So uh, everything is just completely scrambled, Peter. Not only do you Mm -hmm. have all these questions about land and railroads, but the whole continent is kind of flooded with immigrants and resettled. So, Brian, we have the paradox, ironically— that the 20th century, which seems so filled with anxiety, seems to have lots of tools suddenly available yeah, for the middle class to secure point. itself yeah. in a way that we didn't have before. Are we maybe more stable than we used to be?
3: Yes. I'll bet you didn't expect such a definitive answer, <laughs> yes. Ed. And I think that's exactly the problem. I think for much of the 20th century, we expected to be able to pass on middle-class status to our kids. We expected that our kids would be able to own a home of their own, even if we couldn't. We expected our kids to get a college education, even if we didn't have one. And so to answer Neil's question, uh, I think that this is a very recent question by 20th century and 21st century standards. It's only in the last 20 to 30 years that suddenly a college education seems out of reach. And it's only in the last 30 years that we have seen home ownership by the younger sorts, let's say 25 to 35-year-olds, decline precipitously, things that we simply took for granted as being passed on as a birthright, if you will, of being middle class, are now suddenly very open to question and not so secure, a la the world that Peter and you, Ed, described.
0: Yeah, Brian, I think that's exactly right. There are all kinds of safety nets out there, but they look frayed now. And what we've discovered, I think, is that the independence we thought we had as middle class people was actually interdependence, multiple dependencies. And we see how tenuous those dependencies are and how fragile the prospects of our own children are because of those fraying nets, that that lack of opportunity. So you got a good education, get a PhD, for instance. What good does that do you?
2: And what's interesting is how new those nets are that are already yes. fraying. I think that people yeah. of the 18th and 19th centuries would say, What are you guys worried about? Things have never been stable. <laughs> That's exactly You've right. never been secure in, exactly in your identity right. in America. And for 15 or 20 years after World War II, you guys made up all this machinery you thought was going to keep middle class society going forever. It's already breaking down. Welcome to American history. <laughs> That's going to do it for us today, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. Our email is backstory at virginia.edu. You can also leave a comment on our website. And while you're there, take a moment to weigh in on our upcoming shows. We really do value your input.
3: Whatever you do, don't be a stranger.
2: Is it you or your parents in this income tax bracket?
3: Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, Foundation and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and
0: by History Channel, history made every day. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, Kelly Jones, Emily Gaddick, and Robert Armengall. Jamal Milner is our engineer. We had help from Coley Elhai. Special thanks this week to Nathan Connolly and Jenny Goloboy.
6: Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.
3: Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.